flat is a state of mind. Get to know the people, science, and stories that make the Kansas outdoors more than flyover country. This is Flatlander Podcast, presented by the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. What I see on my dirt is undescribable as the Bible. Hey, Flatlanders. It's me, one of your hosts, Lindsay, and it's my favorite time of the year, fall, which means that there are way more spiders out and about, or at least I notice them way more this time of year. Um, And this episode is all about spiders. Uh, They might make your morning walks in the woods a sticky mess, but this episode is chock full of spider information that will spin an absolute web of delight and get you ready for spooky season. Um, As for the walk, the only thing that can probably help you is a stick or someone else walking in front of you, though they might not like it very much. Um, I'm going to hand it over to our other host today. Hey, y'all. I'm Tana, and I am so excited to introduce our guest for this podcast. So today, our special guest is Dr. Dustin Wilgers. Dustin, welcome, and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So Dustin is an associate professor at McPherson College and is the author of the Savannah Spider Super Scientist series. Currently, there are two that have been published, Savannah Spider Super Scientist Goes to School and Savannah Spider Super Scientist and the Science Fair Mystery. It is so cool to have another awesome Kansas author on the podcast. Um, Dustin, you have a third book in production as well. When is that expected to come out? I just got the illustrations today in the <gasps> mail, so super excited to see them. They are wonderful, probably my illustrator's best work. And oh, man. I just passed them off to my editor, and we're hoping for print in about a couple months, so right before Halloween. Just oh, perfect. perfect timing. <laughs> Love it. Savannah Spider, um, what age group is that geared at? Uh, I write it towards... Kindergarten probably should have their parents read it to them um, all the way up through third, fourth grade. Um, they can probably read it to themselves um, and have a blast with it. Oh, man. Hey, if you've got kids trick-or-treating, come into your door, hand out candy, hand out a copy of Savannah Spider. What a great opportunity. Great idea. That I is such it. a good idea. Well, Dustin, we're so excited to have you on today. We're gonna have, we have a whole fun evening of things planned, but we will get to that later. First, will you tell us a little bit about your interest in spiders and how you got where you are today? Yeah, so it might surprise you a little bit. Um, I, back when I was a kid, all the way up probably through college, I was arachnophobic. I was scared to death of spiders. Um, never worked on them, didn't want anything to do with them, and all of a sudden... I went to graduate school and had an opportunity to um, study them. And I was interested in communication. I worked on lizards and snakes. So I've always kind of had an affinity for the creepy crawly things that um, a lot of people don't want anything to do with. Um, My advisor uh, didn't know as much about lizards and snakes. And she said, let me give you an opportunity to sell you on my, on my organism. And I was like, okay, try (laughs) <laughs> and it took her about 30 minutes and I was completely bought in. Um, it was, they are absolutely fascinating. And a year later, here I am, I'm collecting hundreds of spiders over a night, housing them in little cages and doing research on them. And it's 15 years later, here I am, right. And doing 
the same thing still and writing about them. Oh my gosh. I imagine I'm like picturing your office right now and I'm imagining like floor to ceiling, like little cages with spiders everywhere. How is that our face? N- not my office, but my <laughs> lab space was. Oh, okay. At, okay. At, 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 at some point um, during kind of the height of uh, some of my research in graduate school, I had, I was collecting two different species and I was doing experiments on both of them. And I had somewhere in the range of a thousand to 1200 spiders in individual cages can like, so one of the things that drew me to spiders was if I were to have a thousand snakes or lizards, like that would take an entire building. Um, but I can house a thousand spiders in a room, not much larger than the room we're in right now. Oh, wow. How long did it take you to feed all of them? Um, that was a major part of my week. (laughs) (laughs) I would feed them twice a week and it would, to, to get through all of them, it was probably a six to eight hour process. Whoa. Two crickets at a time. So it was, yeah. Like tongue feeding, like wait for them to get it. Whoa. Well, I, there's a hole in the top of the cage and I had a little cork in it so the spider couldn't get out. Normally I could pull the cork out and then I would one cricket at a time, drop it into the cage with them. And I did that 1,200 times. And so I got really good at picking up crickets. and um, <laughs> Life skills. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not one of those transferable skills that you put on a resume, right? It's like, I know how to pick up crickets. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow, that's a lot of mouths to it's feed. so many. And listeners, if you're hearing this thinking, oh, my gosh, I have to feed you know, thousands of spiders. Um, that sounds like my nightmare. Stay tuned because I have a feeling that Dustin is going to sell us on spiders the same way he was sold on spiders. Well, Dustin, we knew you were the man for the job because, um, you know, some folks show up to the job with a briefcase and Dustin showed up with a spider in a, in a case, a tarantula, actually. She travels everywhere with me. And what was her name? Uh, Franklin. Um, her full name is Rosalind Franklin. I name all of my spiders off after famous scientists, but um, she's a rose-haired tarantula. Hence Rosalind um, and Rosalind Franklin. Um, so it's just easier to go with one name, um, and I just go with Franklin. Precious. I'm sorry we didn't introduce our fourth co-host. <laughs> <laughs> um, just so you all know, today is August the 19th, and we're actually recording this episode right before a big spider walk event that's being held here in Pratt, um, which kind of leads me to ask... Is there a better time of year to look for spiders? Like, why in the early fall time of year are we doing this event? So, spiders are ectotherms. Um, so, it's not necessarily that fall is the best time. Um, I, you can find different species of spiders active throughout spring through fall. Just try not to go out in the middle of December. They're going to be like tucked away in their burrows underneath the ground. They're not very active, but, um, late spring all the way through late fall, um, there will be some species of wolf spider, which is the one we're looking for tonight, um, crawling around on the ground and they're super easy to find. Um, which is again, going back to why spiders, right? I could go out and collect hundreds in an evening rather than like a couple lizards or a couple snakes in an evening, I could collect an entire sample size for an experiment I wanted to do, like, just like that. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about how easy it is to just go out and collect a bunch of spiders. Yeah, 
I need to. Perfect sense. I collect everything else. Why not? I just start doing spiders. It's okay. Not not very many people think that it's easy to collect spiders, right? <laughs> it's not the first thing that people think of. They try <laughs> to stay away from them. Right. right. I uh, I scooped one up from going into our warehouse and getting exposed to all the pesticides in there the other day in front of my boss, and he was uh, not. <laughs> he didn't like it too much. He's <laughs> like, I don't think I would have ever done that. <laughs> I've got a policy where if they're outside, they don't bother me, and I'm not scared of them. But when they're in my house, for some reason, I turn into a different human, and uh, it requires assistance. So. <laughs> I have done really well at, at getting my wife to either put them in a cup or just scream my name. Um, yep. And that then I will come put them in a cup yeah. and transfer them outside. Yeah, that's what I do. My husband's not a big spider person, <laughs> and uh, I am the spider spider rescuer in our house. There's got to be one, at least one in every home, right? <laughs> So we're going to talk a little bit more about methodology for collecting spiders and um, some fun terms around that. But before we dive into that, let's talk about spiders in the general sense. So what groups of spiders are out there or classifications of spiders, if you will? So there are a lot of different groups. Um, like when I think of the word group, I probably think of the scientific classification term more like family. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a bunch of different families of spiders. All of them have very unique characteristics that go along with their lifestyles. Um, and I was doing a little bit of refreshing. I saw about 120 to 130 different families of spiders. Um, those include things like wolf spiders um, in family Lycosidae, um, jumping spiders in Salticidae. Um, the orb weavers that are the ones that we oftentimes are encountering right now that are building webs on your porch or in front of your door um, or in a rainy day, um, crab spiders, um, uh, widow, black widows and the widows, all of them are in different what we call families. All of them have very different lifestyles, very different um, body shapes, body styles to go along with those lifestyles. And so when I think of groups, I oftentimes think of um, different hunting behaviors, different um, lifestyles, where they build their home, how do, what are they trying to catch, all of those things. Oh, Dustin, you mentioned jumping spiders, and I have to say, like, if you are spider hesitant, like I was um, at one part in my life, and maybe still am a little bit, the best intro to spiders seems to me to be those cute little fuzzy jumping spiders. How sweet. They are the teddy bears of the spider <laughs> world. Um, and that is one of the things that kind of got me into spiders in the first place. Um, and I was interested in communication. I saw a video of jumping spiders communicating in the ways that they do. And it just blew my mind. Like they communicate in a modality that is like extrasensory to us. Like I don't realize, I know you, you said these microphones are super sensitive, which is actually really nice because the spiders, they vibrate by shaking the ground, right? Yeah. And so they feel that. And it's like, that's not something I hear. That's nothing, something I pick up on. Um, but that's their, one of their main modes of communication. And so I see jumping spiders waving their legs around, vibrating the ground, doing all these crazy things. And it's just like, I got to figure out what they're saying because like I don't speak spider and they don't speak English right <laughs> and so it's like how do I translate or figure out 
what they're saying to one another. Right. Oh, man, that's fascinating. And jumping spiders are really well known to be like the dancing spiders, right? But they're not really dancing to woo their partner. They're actually making those sounds, aren't they? Yeah. So they're, they're doing both. Okay. So they're um, one of the things I studied um, was called multimodal communication. So they're they're communicating visually. They're communicating vibrationally. They're communicating chemically. All of them going on at the same time. Um, and so it's how they synthesize all of those different modalities together because what we found out is in some cases perceiving one modality changes the way they perceive the next modality. So without the vibration, the visual signal means something different to them. Oh. That's so complex. So, so it's, again, it's going to completely, it'll blow your mind um, when you start looking into how these organisms are communicating um, it's, it's bizarre and it's super curious. It's, it's one of those things when I, when I sat down in the lab, um, we just know very little about their communication and to think that you're sitting down listening to spiders communicate vibrationally and doing these leg waves and that very likely you are the first one in the world to have ever heard that vibration, that mode of communication and to try and describe it is like is really cool. Like that, like that's like geek out scientist mode, right? You're literally making me cry right now. <laughs> like this is embarrassing, but <laughs> it's so that's what got me into spiders. That's like, and they've never disappointed me. Like you just sit there and you see all the different ways that they're communicating, and it just blows your mind every single time consider our minds blown. Yeah, I just had an emotional reaction to that. <laughs> so Dustin, what have we learned about what the spiders are saying? Are you focused more on how they're communicating or have you actually been able to decipher specific combinations of vibrations or movements that mean specific things? So there's a lot of different messages um, sent in these um, signals. So there's species specific um, messages so that they can identify one species from another a lot of my work um, focused on um, communicating a signal of a mate quality. I was um, doing uh, sexual communication between males and females. And in wolf spiders, it's, um, it is a do-or-die moment in many cases because they're cannibals. And so males are communicating with females. And so the females literally, in, in some cases, trying to decide whether the male that's approaching her is a meal or a mate. And so he better be really good at communicating his quality, his condition. There should be no miscommunication, no misinterpretation. And so there, he's communicating his species and his condition to her to let her know that not only am I your species, but I, I'm really good. Um, so I looked at the color of their leg. Um, so they're, their leg is pigmented, um, and so they have they vary from brown, like the wolf spiders that we normally see, um, and in some cases, the males, when they um, mature, their foreleg turns black, and it only turns black when they mature, and then they wave that black leg in front of females, and what I found out was that the more that the males ate when they were growing up, the darker their foreleg is. Yeah. That's what? fascinating. And here's the cool part. So females do care about the foreleg color. 
but they only care about the four-leg color if the vibrational signal is there. If there is no vibrational signal, which I, I tended to think was more of a of a species identifier, like she needs to know that they're the right species first, and if they know they're the right species, then they go on and say, let me assess your visual display, and now I can tell whether you're a good mate or a bad mate. Oh, Flatlanders, Dude. you heard it here. Whether in the dating world, whether you are a human <laughs> or a spider, communication is key. And I'll just throw one more kink in there. So females vary in their choosiness. Young females, extremely choosy. They pick between black leg males and brown leg males. As females get older towards the end of their reproductive lifespan, they become less choosy. They don't discriminate between black and brown legs. Are they just so like, I need to have babies? It It is. It is. At, at that point, it is there at... If, if they miss that window and if there is not another mate to come across to their path, then they might have zero reproductive success because there might not be another mate. And so they're like, I can't be choosy anymore. I need to go with the male that's here. Dang. Yep. Fascinating. I, if, you know, we thought the human dating world was complex. <laughs> right? I can't imagine being a spider. <laughs> I'm glad I was never. It's literally do or die. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, gosh. <laughs> this is already so good. I'm so excited this, about this. This might be one of my favorite episodes of this all time. awesome. <laughs> all right. Earlier, we talked a little bit about the different groups of spiders, right? How many different species of spiders are actually in Kansas? So in Kansas, um, we estimate somewhere around 500 species. Um, in the U.S., probably somewhere north of 4,000. Um, and worldwide, we're looking at somewhere close to 50,000. Oh, my gosh. Are spiders just being discovered often still? I love that you answered that question, or <laughs> that you asked that question. So, yes, they are. Um, it's estimated that we only know about 20% of the spider species out there, which as an arachnologist, that, like, geek out mode, because that means that there might be somewhere in the neighborhood of like 200 to 250,000 species of spiders out there. Lots to describe. Right. And Job just security. Yeah, yeah. seriously. <laughs> and just thinking about the behaviors that we already know about, mm-hmm. imagine, and that's just 20%. Imagine the behaviors that we don't even know exist yet. I just came across um, somebody, one of my colleagues um, this morning had told me about a couple spiders that were described just recently. Um, in Australia, they were jumping spiders. Have you heard of the peacock spiders? Yeah. Yes. So oh my gosh. I, I, I didn't know these new names, but um, they are pr- quite possibly my favorite spider names in the world. First spider named Skeletor. This is the common name. Skeletor. The second one, <laughs> this, is e- this is even better. Sparkle Muffin. <laughs> Stop it. There's a no, spider out there can, named Sparkle Muffin. There is a co- the common name of a jumping spider, the peacock spider, Sparkle Muffin spider. Is there any crossover in the business of naming nail polishes and naming spiders? Because it's starting <laughs> to sound that way. You know, that's that's kind of the wonder of being able to describe your own species and name it. Because there are certain rules in terms of the Latin naming, um, depending on what genus that you find it. But the species is completely up to you. And so you can name it after someone important in the scientific community that was your mentor, 
or you can go off and name it after a He-Man or Master of the Universe character like Skeletor or Dude. a fingernail polish color sparkle muffin or whatever muffin. you want to do. I literally listened to a podcast the other day about flies, and those are like also getting discovered almost reg- like on a weekly basis. And someone named a fly after Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a, a comp? <laughs> oh, and um, uh, RuPaul. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So Look them up. <laughs> I did learn, because I was listening to um, the Ologies podcast, and I learned that it is kind of like bad form if you discover a species, if you name it after yourself. Is that is that true? I wouldn't name a spider after myself. There are a lot of people before me that I would name them after in honor of. Um, mm-hmm. And if I if I couldn't choose the right person to name it after, um, I'd... I might just go with Skeletor or something like that. It would, it would, like Snazzle I didn't want to make anybody mad. I just would, instead of picking one person, right, I might as well go with something completely random and that will make people smile, right? I love it. I would end up naming it something after Lord of the Rings. Oh, you absolutely <laughs> would. Wow. So I'm, I'm very curious, and this is a little bit of a tangent here, but Sparkle Muffin, the spider, <laughs> not the nail polish, is that, um, does it have like a, is it a brown spider with kind of a dewy appearance? I mean, does it actually resemble a sparkly muffin or is this it, just like it is? It is blue. The, the fan or the tail that is spread out, like when the peacocks do their display, um, is blue and red in the sparkle muffin spider. And for the Skeletor spider, they named it that way because when the fan opened up the, um, on the fan is more of a black and white pattern that uh-huh. they, they thought resembled a skull. Oh. Um, hence Skeletor. Might be my new fave spider. <laughs> there oh. you go. My gosh, that's so cool. That sparkle muffin spider is like the muffin that is in the window of the bakery. Like the one they want you to see <laughs> and the, come in. the pretty one. <laughs> it, oh my gosh. So, so cool. Well, that's just absolutely fascinating. I had no idea that such great names existed in the spider world. <laughs> so... I want to get at first a question that gets under my skin. If anybody knows me, they know I get on my soapbox about this. I want to know, are all spiders venomous? And I also want to know the difference between venom and poison, because that just grinds my gears. It is a question that I hear almost every single event that I do. And, or, I mean, everybody in in my circle knows that I'm into spiders. And so I very frequently get texts with pictures and they say i just found this in my house is it poisonous and like before i go off on my soapbox and i'm like (laughs) okay take a breath i'm not gonna like battle the use of poison right now but i'm just gonna have to respond back to them and usually they don't like my response back um so um all spiders are venomous and i so i text them back and they say like it's like, yes, it is venomous, and that usually freaks them out. And then I wait for just a little bit to let that sink in and, like, get their anxiety up. And then I send that second text, and I say, but it's not dangerous. Because there's a huge difference in the spider world, right? There's, there's, I mean, all spiders are venomous. Very few of them are dangerous to us. Um, so the difference between venom and poison is venom needs to be injected into your bloodstream or into your body. Poison needs to be ingested. And so um, you could technically drink venom. Um, I never suggest to do that because they're made of, it's it's a concoction of proteins that your stomach acid would, would break down just fine. Um, don't do that, please. Um, 
And, but um, if it's injected into your bloodstream, it has got a completely different pathway and it has uh, a major, it could have a major effect on you. So venom and poison for dummies. If it bites you and you suffer, it's venomous. If you bite it and you suffer, it is poisonous. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that's good to know. And thank you because that's something that grinds my gears. We hear it um, back and forth with spiders, but also with snakes as well. Mm-hmm. And that's fascinating to know that all spiders are venomous, just not all of them have venom that's harmful to humans. Yeah, their venom is is their primary mode of prey capture. And so... I try to remind people this of all, all the time. Um, we are not on the menu um, for spiders, right? So they like to eat a lot of things, um, but but humans are not one of them. And so um, any kind of uh, adverse reaction we might have to venom is is by chance, right? We only we have five hundred species. I said only about three of them are um, dangerous to us or medically important. Um, in case, in other cases, if you are bit, you can have, um, a allergic reaction to them. Just the same thing that like a honeybee, um, there are variations in how you respond to honeybee stings. Um, some of them are just inconvenient. Um, others, you can have a major anaphylactic reaction to them. Um, the same kind of reaction could possibly happen with a spider. So you always got to just be careful, um, but um, you are not regularly going to have um, a reaction to them. Huh. Okay, Lindsay, I know you, and <laughs> I just know that as kids, we were probably both that same weirdo kid that would pick up Daddy Long Legs on oh, the yeah. playground or like on field trips. Um, I always heard with Daddy Long Legs, are those technically spiders? I didn't think so. And I also used to hear the rumor that they were like the most venomous animal in the world and all that. Can we dispel both of those rumors really quick? Yes, please. They also have the other common name, the huntsman, right? Harvestman. Harvestman, that's it, not the huntsman. Huntsman is an extremely venomous spider. Right. Um, and But the harvestman is, or a pileonid, is the name of the order um, that they're in. For daddy long legs. Yep. The harvestman, I apologize. So not only are they not spiders, they're not in the same order as spiders are, um, but a pileonids harvestmen don't have any venom glands. See, all these rumors out here about spiders, or not spiders. Not spiders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they, I mean, they look like spiders to yeah. people who don't know any different. And yep. they get so. you a lot of street cred on the playground if you're picking them up. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all things that are very important. So how common are actual spider bites? Because when we talk about spiders, people's safety and the medical importance is, of course, one of the first things that we want to talk about. Right. And the most the species that we have in Kansas that are venomous are black widows, brown recluses, and the third one? A yellow sack spider is, is one of them, but it's not okay. very common. Um, okay. It's, it, we, we find them every once in a while in Lawrence, Kansas City area. Mm. Um, but... I, I don't believe they're even native oh. to Kansas. Okay. They were they were they were brought in, and so um, usually we're talking about just two primary ones. The yellow sack is is rare enough that we really don't have to worry about it much. Got it. Okay. Hmm. And so the most I guess is there one more common than the other as far as um, a brown recluse bite versus a black widow? What we see more often? Uh, I mean, I would say brown recluse are more often. Um, because they're in higher numbers, and we find them more often in places that we that we live, um, and so we're going we're we're more likely to encounter them. Um, as far as the toxicity of the venom, 
Um, black widows are more dangerous um, than brown recluse are. Um, but I was there's a one of my colleagues um, from California, Rick Vetter, um, writes a lot about the misdiagnoses of spider bites. And there was a, a study um, that he saw that about 80% of spider bites are misdiagnosed. As, 80%. Yeah. And so it's, I mean, there it's a very common um, diagnosis when you go to the to the doctor. Um, they're like, oh, it looks like you might have got bit by a spider. Or somebody self-diagnoses, oh, I think I got bit by a spider, and I, I, I'll just keep an eye on it. It very, very likely is some kind of dermal, dermatological infection um, superficial skin infection um, that will go away um, over time and or you get some antibiotics for antibiotics don't really treat spider bites and so if it's going to be help like we really the only thing you want to try and um, watch for with spider bites especially with the necrotic lesions that we'd get with brown recluse are those kind of infections so you want to try and keep the wound clean so that it doesn't have that post-secondary infection not necessarily treat the the bite itself with antibiotics so that it'll go away. So I've read that brown recluse mouth parts are not super powerful. Like they might not be powerful enough to actually puncture human skin. And most of the time when people get bit by a brown recluse, it's because they're in like a piece of clothing or in your bed and they get smushed up against your skin. Is there any truth in that? I don't know a whole lot about the size of the fangs and how delicate they are. I do know that, um, that brown recluse are not likely to bite, um, that they bite as a last resort, and that more often than not, even if they do bite, it's called a dry bite, and so they don't even deliver venom. That venom is is relatively precious. It's expensive stuff to make for the body, um, and so they're not going to use it unless it's absolutely necessary. And so um, even if you do feel like you've been bit, there's a chance that uh, there might not have been any venom delivered in the first place what should people look for if they think they have been bit by a brown recluse yeah um so part of that venom is is an, a necrotic um reaction so it'll start breaking down tissue um you'll start to see um dead decaying tissue black blackened skin blackened tissue start to form at the center and then if it's it's going to run its course and that blackened tissue, that um, necrotic area will start spreading out. Um, and, and hopefully it's, it's, it subsides before that pit gets too large. In some cases when it's a large bite or there's a large reaction, you can get pits that are the size of a marble or even a little bit larger um, than that. Um, although I, those aren't as, those aren't common from what I can tell. So as always, anytime um, when admiring a dangerous critter, um, do the best you can to stay safe about it and admire from a distance. If you don't know what it is or you're not sure if it's dangerous, we always encourage our listeners to just admire from afar. Okay, enough about the safety talk. Why do spiders have so many freaky little eyes? Okay, they're not freaky. They're adorable. (laughs) Depends on the species. (laughs) Jury's still out. So without getting too deep into like evolutionary biology um the the reason they have eight legs and majority of them have eight eyes is probably because they're arthropod or the chlycerate cousin that that they evolved from um had eight legs and eight eyes now 
most spiders have eight eyes, but not all. Um, we do see some groups out there that have two eyes, four eyes, six eyes, and there's even a group out there that have no eyes whatsoever. What? Yep. Did not know that. Are yep. the crab spiders the ones that have four? Um, or do they have eight total? I think they might have six. Crab yeah. spiders are another cute family. They are very cute. Even though they have so many eyes, they actually can't see very well. Really? They, they spread the, in, in the in, for the vast majority of spiders, they spread those eyes out. They're motion detecting and light dark detecting. Um, the ones that see best, there are a few different groups. Um, so our favorite jumping spiders. Um, they, um, they've looked at the, um, the sensory system in the, in, in the eyes, and it's about as sensitive as a cat's eye. So it has, it's the, it has the ability to resolve images equivalent to our house cats. Um, that's the, by far the best spatial resolution of across the spider groups. Wolf spiders also have these really large primary eyes in the front. Um, they have pretty good eyesight um, as well. So those are some of the groups. And the ogre-faced spiders um, have... yeah. Sorry, what? I said, I said ogre-faced spiders. Both of our heads just, like, snapped. Yeah, so they have the largest... They have the largest eye um, per um, area of face. It, it, they have a rather unfortunate-looking face. Oh. Um, you have to really like spiders to like their... Oh. They, but... They have pretty good eyesight as well. Oh, a face only a mother could love. Yeah. Okay, but I love it. So I was I was just down in Ecuador um, about two months ago, and I got a chance to see ogre face spiders, um, like in person. Um, that was one of my my geek out moments. And so they have really unique behavior. So they live by hanging at night upside down. So. They make a web in their in their forelegs, and they hold the web out with their forelegs, and they hold it out, and they hang upside down, and they wait for something to move underneath them. And so, when something moves underneath them, they can detect it with those really big eyes, and they zip down and they grab whatever moved, and they tie it up with their legs, and then they zip back up into the to whatever tree branch, and then they have their lunch. What? It's like a knapsack. They're just like, yeah. Scoop they, it up. They, they carry a little web hammock in their in their legs, and they zip down, wrap them up, zip back up, and they have dinner. That is so cool. How big are these spiders? Um, as I mean, when you look at the at the pictures, they they look relatively large, but um, I mean, probably two in like with legs, probably a couple inches around. Okay, pretty, pretty small. They're zooming in pretty dramatically whenever you see those those faces with those really, really large eyes. Um, they're not really large spiders. Okay. Personally, I think they're kind of cute because their eyes are so big. They're just like little big dog eyes. They kind of look like a googly-eyed warlock. If you haven't already Googled them, I highly suggest <laughs> taking that path, and you will either be so excited or you will have nightmares, but there's no in-between. Let us know. Like, Let's take a poll, and I want to know who out, who out there, listeners, do you think it's a cute spider, or do you think it's a face only a mother spider can love? Yeah. Okay, so there are some defining characteristics that make a insect an arachnid. Um, and all spiders are arachnids, but not all arachnids are spiders. Mm-hmm. 
So can you tell us a little bit about what actually is the definition of an arachnid and um, how other arachnids differ from spiders? Yes. So when we look at um, some of the features that kind of unify arachnids, we're looking at the number of body regions that they have. Um, Insects have three, and so they have a head, thorax, and abdomen. And in the arachnids, we see they have a cephalothorax, or that head and thorax region is fused, and then they have a back region, or that that abdomen. Um, So that's pretty common and universal across the arachnids, Um, and they also have eight legs. So those are those are two common features, and then all the arachnids are chelicerates. Um, so that's it's one of those um, one of the features as there's a, an appendage on the very front of their body called the chelicera, and that comes in a variety of different shapes, um, and it has a variety of different functions. Um, in the spiders, the chelicera are the venom delivery organs. That's where the fangs are attached, um, but that's not the case in all arachnids. Um, there are a lot of other orders of arachnids. So arachnida is a class, um, and when you look within class arachnida, there are 11 orders, um, including arachnidae, um, which is the spiders, but you also have apiliones, which is the harvestmen. You have scorpiones, which is the scorpions. You have ticks, so a lot of people don't realize that ticks and mites are arachnids as well. Um, you have... Um, uh, vinegaroons, or um, there's there's some of my absolute favorites. They're, the the order name is Thelophonidae, um, and so they get their name because of a defense mechanism that they have. Um, they have this really long tail at the end of the abdomen, and if you really make them mad and they feel like they need to defend themselves, that at the base of the tail is an organ that shoots acetic acid out of the tail at you, and the common name that we know of as acetic acid is vinegar. Um, and so I've, I've had a couple of them in my office. And of course, if I have them in my office, I, I, I want to know why they get their namesake. And so I would take a piece of cardboard and I would just kind of dangle it in front and just try to like move it around. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, here comes a line of liquids and it just sprays across the cardboard and a second or two later, my entire office smells like vinegar. Whoa! Um, and it's it's pretty concentrated, so it's intended for um, predators that are trying to eat them. And that acenic acid that gets in their nose, in their eyes, um, would burn. Um, and it would be a deterrent system, not just a, a smelly deterrent system, but it probably would burn if it was in the wrong area. Dang, that's wicked. Yeah. What What's the common name for that group of organisms? Um, vinegaroons. That's just what they're called? Mm-hmm. Yep. What? Yep. BRB, Googling it. You also have um, some arachnid order that's amblypigi. Um, so amblypigids are tailless whip scorpions. Um, they have a fantastic um, behavior. We actually studied those in, in our lab as well. Um, they have these really long, their, their front leg, instead of having four pairs of walking legs, um, their first pair of walking legs is converted into an in, an antenna. Um, so these really long whip-like legs, and they're not good for walking. They're really delicate looking, um, and it turns out they use them in communication displays. They use them as sensory devices. So when um, two amblypigids get into a contest, whether it be for um, a 
a, a nook in a tree for a, a home site or a retreat, um, they will get into a, a battle and they will sit and they will take that antenniform leg and they'll wave it over the top of one another. They don't touch one another, <laughs> but they just will get at these opposite displays and they'll wave those legs as fast as they can over the top of the other one. I'm not touching you. I know. <laughs> that's so exactly what I that's was what, thinking. This is, and so we, we were trying to figure out one of the things that we did in the lab was try to figure out how does that function as a communicative display because it would end up deciding contests between these amblypigeons. Well, it turns out that they have a very delicate hair on the top of their femur of one of the legs. And that hair is sensitive to wind displacement. So just like whenever a fly is flying and underneath that wing, you can feel the wind. Well, waving that antenniform leg creates just enough wind that the hair on top of the leg vibrates back and forth and it sends a nervous signal that we could act. So one of, I had a, there was a, a sensory um, neurologist that was working in our lab that actually could record the nerve signals that came from the hair that was being displaced by those kind of displays. And he could tell that that hair was actually being excited and sending a nervous signal to the brain that could tell that amblypigid something about its environment. That is insane. Yeah. How? How? I don't know about you guys, but, well, I was already sold on spiders, but now I'm even more sold. You cried at, like, two questions in. Okay, don't. <laughs> it was one time. Okay, listeners, so if you were anything like me, you immediately Googled these amblypigids, and the Mexican tailless whip scorpion might look familiar to you if you are a Harry mm. Potter yep. fan. Yep. So the Mexican tailless whip scorpion was actually featured in Harry Potter, the Goblet of Fire. So if you thought that was a mystical, magical creature that doesn't exist in the real world, and if you you took some sort of comfort in that um just know that no you are not safe <laughs> they look really dangerous but they are actually very delicate and um very easy to handle they're non-venomous um but the front pedipalps that they have are very spiky and um those are used to capture prey like moths so they sit there and they wait for moths to fly over they can feel and then they reach out those spiny pedipalps, grab, and then pull in, and all those things kind of pierce those <gasps> insects. So, I mean, if you have a really large amblypigid with really large pedipalps with spines, run. Um, but other than that, I think you're safe. Damn, you had me sold for a minute. Okay. I was like, oh, they're beautiful and delicate. Okay, cool. I'm down for that. Well, <laughs> Professor like, Moody sold it as like, she's lethal. No. Maybe in the world of Harry Potter... That creature may be lethal, but in real life, yeah. they're not. When I was down in Ecuador, um, they're, are, they're all over the place in the Amazon rainforest. And so at night, we can we can find them kind of crawling, scurrying across the trail. And all of my students and I were running around catching them. And they just, I have pictures of them just crawling up our arms. And there's they're not, yeah, they're not aggressive. They're not dangerous. Like, you just scoop them up and... They really, the, the pedipalps are, I think they're, they're delicate enough and they're small enough that like them trying to do anything to your hand would probably do more damage to them. So you're actually trying to be careful with them, not to hurt them, not even worried about, about you. Can we just normalize scooping up harmless spiders and leave baby birds 
on the ground yes. or in their nests, please. Please. I like <laughs> that. I like it. So you mentioned that you do um, keep spiders in captivity as part of your research and also maybe for some personal enjoyment as well. How long do spiders typically live and does that dip, differ um, in the wild versus in captivity? Um, so there's a lot of variability in how long they live. Most of the spiders that I work on and did my research on are essentially annuals. So they are they hatch out of their egg sac um, in early summer or late summer. They grow mature um, and they don't grow very much over the winter here in the temperate regions because it's just it's cold. They, and there's not a lot to eat, so they stay a pretty small size throughout the winter. But then once spring gets here, it warms up and they're starting to get more and more food. They grow relatively rapidly, um, and they'll get to reproductive maturation the next summer. They'll mate. The female will lay the egg sac, and that egg sac will hatch. And the adults that mated and produce that egg sac will die, and the gen- there's non-overlapping generations. Um, so a lot of spiders are like that. Some of the larger wolf spiders that are the burrowing wolf spiders, can we see them regularly live two, three years pretty easily. They get relatively large. Um, but other species like trapdoor spiders um, and tarantulas are quite long-lived. Um, the the spider I brought with me, Franklin, um, my guess, my best guess at how old she is is somewhere around 17 years old. What? That is so cool. And is Franklin a native Kansas species? No, she's a South American species. So uh, many of the... of of the ground-dwelling tarantulas that are common in the pet trade um, are from Central and South America. Um, and we do have a, tra- a species of tarantula that you would find in and around um, southern Kansas, western Kansas. Um, the Texas brown or the Oklahoma brown tarantula is pretty common. Um, people oftentimes, it, we, we hear about them more often um, when we have the major tarantula crossing events where the, the roadways are littered with spiders crossing the road. Which is like now-ish, right? I, you know, I, I haven't kept track of the time that, that we normally hear. It could, it, it very well could be. I think it pretty well overlaps with the Dirty Kansas bike race because I've heard stories of bike participants in certain stretches of mm-hmm. that journey basically feeling like they needed to pick up their legs and put them on the frame of the bike because <laughs> there were so many spiders yeah. crossing the road as part of that migration. Right, and I've been hearing more and more accounts of people just seeing them out on the roads. Yep. Listeners, keep in mind we are recording this on August the 19th, so by the time you hear this, the big tarantula crossing might be done, but... Check it out and see. Yeah. Interesting fact. Most of those spiders that you see crawling across the road are all males. Really? Why is that? So females are um, most often burrow bound. Um, and so in in spiders, once a male matures and sexually matures, he has about a year left to live. So Franklin lived 17 years because she's a female. Male tarantulas, seven to eight years. So that takes them about seven years to reproductively mature. Once they molt to that final maturation, they have about a year left to live. And so the majority of those spiders that are crossing the roads are all males looking for female burrows because this is literally one of their last chances to find a female to mate. And so the female has no incentive to, to get out and, and risk death, right? So like, if she doesn't mate one year, 
because nobody found her or she didn't find a male, she's going to have 10, 11, 12, 13 more years if things go well to mate again. Males, if they lose this opportunity right now, they're not going to be here for the next time. Dang. Okay, I have two questions. They kind of go hand in hand. One, um, why does it take them so long to reach maturity? And two, is reaching maturity based off time or do they grow larger and reach maturity faster based on how much they're consuming? Um, so larger spiders take longer to grow. They grow through a series of molting. Um, and so it's not like a continuous growth process like humans. Um, and so they will stay the same size. They will molt off the exoskeleton and they'll stair step up. Um, so tarantulas don't molt as often as some of the smaller species do. Um, even at the fastest that they would molt, I saw some of my younger tarantulas when they were smaller, they molt every three to six months. Um, and in wolf spiders that are only getting the size of maybe a half dollar um, are molting every one to two weeks. And they, they're, and yes, the second part of that question, they do molt faster and they, re, and they mature sooner the more they eat. And so if you are able to acquire, it's, it's such an energetically expensive process to produce a brand new exoskeleton underneath and to grow and to add that biomass that the more energy you have brought in from your food, the faster you're able to, to ramp up and get to that size. Yeah, okay. And listeners, you know me. I tend to go down rabbit holes. Um, do spi- do Let's use tarantulas since that seems to be um, a good species to focus this question on. Do they have a size limit or do they just keep growing and um, molting? until they die yes there's a size limit um they because i i I think the best way to answer this is because they're they're ectotherms their metabolism some of the physiology um constraints that they have keep them from getting super large um but we do see tarantulas still getting relatively big in size. The The largest tarantula species that we see is the Goliath bird eater. Um, and when they mature leg span wise, they get about a foot across. So um, that's the size of a dinner plate. Um, and I have a salmon pink bird eater, um, which is an, the fourth largest species. They get to about 10 inches across by the time my, my salmon pink bird eater is like five or six years old, um, and she's probably seven or eight inches across now. Um, and so she's got a little bit of, of room to grow, but it, they are they are large in, like, leg span, and they're heavy in, in their biome. They're, like, they, like, carry around a golf ball as sized abdomen um, along with them. It's- if you're hearing the furious sounds of tapping, it is not spider signals. It is Lindsay, like, freaking out and Googling <laughs> every spider that comes up today. I'm sorry, guys. I'm just nerding out so hard right now. <laughs> so I, I do want to talk a little bit about those abdomens and um, 
I have to tell this story because it's one of my favorites. <laughs> so <laughs> my fiance and I actually got engaged at Clark State Fishing Lake, kind of in western Kansas. Mm-hmm. Really, really cool spot. And it was at that lake. It was very special because obviously we just got engaged. But also I saw a tarantula, a Kansas tarantula for the very first time. Um, and it was so cool, but unfortunately that spider's condition seemed to be degrading. Um, is the size of the abdomen, I'm assuming, correlated with kind of the health and body condition of that spider overall? It is. That is one thing that does track and change over time, and it changes um, pretty rapidly with how recently they have eaten. Um, that's where that's where you find the intestines. That's where everything is, is stored and being broken down. Um, is back there. So you can definitely tell a spider how recently they fed based upon the size of that abdomen. It gets really, really large after a recent feeding. And then slowly over time, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller until they feed again. And then it'll, it'll grow back. Like that's about the only thing in a spider that will change dynamically day to day. Um, Everything else, the cephalothorax, the leg size, everything like that is kind of stuck there until they molt. Um, but the abdomen size is, it, it fluctuates. So that was in, um, early to mid October. And if that's the case, was that potentially a male tarantula reaching the end of its life? (laughs) Very likely. Um, it's, it was very likely out and about. Um, and they, once they hit, hit sexual reproduction and they hit maturity, um, they oftentimes reduce their feeding frequencies, um, to invest everything they have into rather than eating, to finding a mate. And so they're, they're not spending any weight. They're not wasting any time um, eating because they realize that they, they have enough energy and energy reserves to, um, to make it to the end anyways. Does that change your engagement story at all? No, it's kind of like a beautiful circle of life type of thing. That's how I'm interpreting this. It was, it. it was a very cool experience though um, on, on both counts. <laughs> so I want to pivot a little bit because Spiders are so fascinating. We could talk about spiders all day. But one of the coolest and maybe one of the most beautiful and interesting, confusing things about spiders is their webs. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, some of the different web strategies and designs and just talk a little bit about that intricacy and why that's so important? So Wrong the different question. Yeah, no, it, it's a good question. So as, as when you look across the different groups, they all have very distinctive web shapes. They all have different web sizes, um, and they use their webs differently. Um, so when we think of a spider web, um, you're oftentimes thinking of that really intricate orb web um, that you hang up on your house um, for Halloween or whatnot. Um, and that's just one group of spiders that spin that web. Um, and it's beautiful. It's ornate. Um, but... Th- there are black widows that spin what we call a tangled or a messy web. Um, and there is not near as much structure to that. They usually build that a foot or two above the ground. And it's just a mishmash of silk all over the place that is catching debris, is catching leaves coming and falling down from the forest canopy. And it just gets caught up all in that, that web, which is this tangled, messy web. Um, you see some spiders that, um, that instead of building their web vertically, like we see in the orb weavers, they build their web horizontally and it's trying to catch different kinds of insects or food. Some spiders use their silk, not to build webs, but to build homes. Um, and so they line 
their 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 funnels or their line their retreats with silk. Um, some spiders are colonial, and rather than build one single web for one single spider, they build this extension of web that can. I mean, the biggest one that I've heard of spans the length of a football field. And there are millions of spiders in this colony living together. Most spiders are cannibalistic and they like to be solitary, but there are a few species out there that can tolerate being in and around one another. And so um, I will tell you that they go through very regular um, web building um, procedures or rules. So they, they will leave... Um, some of them will leave a single line of thread that is like the starting thread that they will start from every single time. So some spiders break down their web every day. So the ones that oftentimes are on our porch in the night, that web is there and you forget that they build it there and sometimes you walk into it. But in the morning, when you walk out the door, the spider web's gone. The spider's still there. It didn't leave, but it took down its web before you woke up. And the cool thing is they actually, when they, when they do that, because silk is so expensive, they're taking down the web and they're eating the silk. And they're recycling the proteins from the silk that they used. And they're going to recycle that into making more silk in the coming days. Um, and so they build the web in the same general pattern all the time. They... they they start with these this frame, and then they fill in the spokes of the wheel. And then once they fill in the spokes of the wheel, they start doing the radials around, and they start walking around in circles. Um, and so they follow the same pattern and the same design every time. Why do they take it down every day? That feels like a waste of energy. Um, there are some, so my hypothesis is that they don't want to lose it to something flying through it during the day. They're not out. They, they don't want to be in the web during the day because things like birds, things like that might find them and eat them relatively. So they usually spend the day when there's not a lot of insects buzzing around, um, tucked away in a leaf in a corner. And um, they don't want to risk a bird or something walking through their web because then they lose it. So if they eat it, then they can recycle it more efficiently um, is, is, is what I've read and what, what my pet hypothesis is, I guess. Makes sense to me. Absolutely. <laughs> so while we were talking about um, all the different types of webs, and you mentioned that orb weavers, orb weavers, excuse me, you said are some of the ones we most commonly see on our porch. Mm-hmm. That got me thinking. We talked about some of the celebrity spiders in Harry Potter. What was Charlotte from Charlotte's Web? And according to the interwebs, Charlotte was a what's called a barn spider or Arrhenius cavaticus. Is that right, Dustin? It seems right. Yeah, I, I, I would barn spider or um, I the common ones that we see here around here are Hens's orb weaver. Um, they're this this brown spiky looking or um, spider. Yeah, more famous spiders than you'd think. Very cool. So one of the ones that um, super fascinated me when I was a kid, we had this great big book of like insects and arachnids and it was, it was the super cool thing. And I used to flip through it, but it was the trap door spider. Can you talk to us a little bit about that strategy? So yeah, they live underground. They build a, a, a burrow underground that is lined with silk 
and they have a trap door um, that they have constructed that is on a hinge. And so they oftentimes sit directly underneath that hinge um, and they have their legs on the silk that is lining their burrow. Um, and that silk is there to transmit vibration. Um, and so when something has walked across the area that is around their burrow, um, that transmits that vibration directly to their legs. And not only do they feel probably what it is, um, but they know what direction it's coming from because they, the rate, all of the, the way they've built that actually sends directional information. Um, and so you can, in let's go away from trapdoor spiders for just a little bit because I'm going to geek out about one of the orb weavers. Please. Right. So orb weavers tune their web so they can tighten the different strands to, to where it vibrates at a certain frequency. And so they actually are, they can pluck the web and they can figure out, first off, is it the right tension? And then they also can pluck it to tell, is there something in it? Is it vibrating the way it should? And so that they, even though they might, I mean, I just, they can't see very well and they can't form images and tell which direction on the web they have something in, but they can pluck the different strands around the center and they know how it's supposed to vibrate and then they know which direction something is at. That is incredible. And our spiders just you know, born, for lack of a better term, with this innate knowledge of how to build a web and what type of web they should build for their um, strategy and their species? Or how does that work? Um, my best guess is it's innate um, because there there's not any kind of parental care. Um, there, When you hatch out of an egg sac, you are surrounded by hundreds of your siblings. Um, and that sounds great except that your siblings are cannibals and they're also um, hungry, right? And so the worst place for you to be is surrounded by a hundred of your hungry brothers and sisters. And so they disperse relatively quickly and they do that um, oftentimes by ballooning. So this is another use of silk. So they'll stand at a, on, on top of a fence post. They'll stand at a high spot. They'll release out this silk that's sometimes a foot long. Um, any slight wind that they have will pick them up off of the the ground and they can take can take them a mile away can take them a hundred yards away it can take them hundreds of miles away they it really kind of depends on how strong the wind is and the direction that they're going so that's what wilbur was crying about in charlotte's web i keep coming back to this guys i don't know why but it was because all the baby spiders were ballooning away you say is the term yes. yep. so and then like when you're walking outside and you feel a random spider web drape across your face and you're not near any sort of structure, is that likely kind of the same thing? There's very likely a very small spider attached to one end of that uh, of that silk that just draped across your face. Oh, a friend. Yeah. Given that it's fall and I don't know what it is, but I just notice spiders more and more this time of year. Um, with them being so small physically and yet so numerous, how do you study spiders on the population level? Like, how do we know that they're doing okay or not doing okay in terms of population? Yeah, so you can oftentimes go out and collect um, spiders at different times of the year or the same time of year over and over again, and you can kind of get an assessment of their density. Um, So one of the ways that you can assess 
density is by finding a regular way to capture them um, and to find them and to locate them. Um, so my um, the, the system that I worked on was wolf spiders, and they have a really easy way to um, pick them up or to, to find them, and it's um, by using their eye shine. Um, and so I could go out and I could get an estimate of density and how frequently I find them in a certain um, distance that I walk. If I have the same transect that I'd walk over and over again, um, I could get a pretty good idea of, of how many spiders are at least um, if in the tall grass prairie. It's a little bit harder um, because they can be in so many different places that you can't see them. Um, but if you were to walk across a short grass lawn, um, you're not likely to miss them um, very often. So you could get a pretty good idea of their densities um, that way. Um, now, eye shining is not the only way. Um, you could also go out, and if they are building webs, um, you can also go out and at the time that they're building their webs, and you could go count how many webs are in a certain distance, and you can get an assessment of their population um, size and structure or, or where you're finding them if you're if all of a sudden you found them one year here and the next year they're they're not um then then that might be an indicator that something something is happening some disturbance something in their ecosystem has changed where they can be found and where they can't be so are there any spiders here locally in kansas or worldwide whose population number is cause for concern none of the species i can think off the top of my head but i'm i'm not going to say that we can just relax about spider populations because I imagine just like many arthropod species that we see um, across the planet, they're, they're likely in decline. Um, we see some species that are able to move um, and uh, invade certain areas. They're the, but I would say... we probably should be a little bit concerned about um, about what spider populations are doing. Um, there, this is the like climate change is a big deal. Um, and climate change is changing the phenology of these, of these areas um, when they are um, coming out of hibernation, how long are they in hibernation? Are they even needing to go in hibernation anymore? Um, is their metabolism like high enough because the temperature is higher during the winter that now they need to start feeding? Um, how what are all these what are all these things? Um, how are they changing in their in their habitat? Um, and so I I don't know of any specific spiders that we know of declining, um, but I think they're all of general concern. Um, I think we should be a little bit worried. Think twice before you smash that spider in your house. No Instead, kidding. use a cup and just gently move it outdoors. Being from the Midwest, so this is another, so Midwest is, I, I think, is particularly vulnerable um, because of the pervasive application of pesticides. Um, and and spiders are, are arthropods. They have an exoskeleton just like the insects, and many of the pesticides that are applied um, attack that exoskeleton. Um, and so spiders are susceptible to that same spray, um, and and what we found um, is that spiders are one of those first lines of pest defense um, in agricultural fields, um, and so when you're spraying the field to remove pests, oftentimes you're removing that first line of defense, 
um, there's a couple studies that I've seen in the past that looked at, um, at, at crop yields with spiders present in the field versus spiders absent in the field. And the crop yields were considerably higher when they had spiders um, in the field because all of those pests are regulated at the normal population levels rather than exploding without predators there. And, um, and so spraying might not be as helpful as you think um, because you're taking away that first line of defense. So I'm a backyard gardener, mm-hmm. and I don't use anything on my plants except for, like, diatomaceous earth mm-hmm. um, to get rid of whatever. Should I just gather up a bunch of spiders and release them into my garden as, like, pest management? Raise an army. Yeah. There you go. Ladybugs for aphids. Yeah. And um, spiders for the grasshoppers and everything else that's going to try and munch on it. So, Like tomato hornworms? Sure. Those sound, like, those sound really juicy. They are um, juicy. And I'm sure spiders would appreciate that. <laughs> okay. You say that like you've eaten one yourself. I just squish them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really curious. When, you know, when we were talking about the concerns facing spiders, um, some of the more charismatic species, like the large tarantulas you mentioned, are they affected at all by the pet trade, or are most of those bred and raised in captivity so it's not affecting our wild populations? Responsible um pet stores and um, the pet trade um, professionals um, raise these um, from uh, they, 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 they breed them in the, in the, in the place. They don't, they're not wild caught. Um, And so I'd like to say that the majority of the pet trade is, is responsible. Um, But we, I, I, you can't avoid um, the, those people that are going to go out and collect from the wild um, and then sell them. Um, and so those that actually could potentially impact some of those sensitive species um, that I mean, and so from from the charismatic species that you were talking about, um, those are those are potentially susceptible. Yeah. So since spiders as a whole group of organisms aren't necessarily everyone's favorite critters, can you talk to us a little bit about why it's a benefit to have them around, especially in your backyard or even in your home? Because I like to keep them in my house. Yeah, so I, I always start with, um, and, I, I, and I've always looked, I've tried to look for who said this first, and I can never find it. Um, but the enemy of your enemy is your friend. Um, and so we have a lot of pests out there that are much more dangerous to us than spiders, right? They, we have um, insects that spread infectious disease. Um, we have insects that are pests against our food and that they consume our crops and they consume our food, right? And so spiders are the top-level arthropod predator in those ecosystems, and they eat a lot of food. Um, there are a lot of spiders out there, um, and they eat a lot of food. I think my estimate on how many spiders there are out there in the global population of spiders, um, and I don't know how they came up with this number, probably a lot of math and extrapolation, but if you added up the weight of like 450 Titanics, like that massive cruise liner ship, right? 450 of those, the weight of all those together is the weight of the global spider population. 
That is a measurement I was not expecting to hear today. I can't even wrap my brain around that. It's, I can't either. Yeah, it's a lot. And they eat a lot of food. The estimate I've, and when you add up the amount of food that they eat, that global spider population is somewhere in the neighborhood of one to one and a half times the total weight of all humans that live on the earth. And that's that's how much insects or how much food they eat. Now, you can imagine where the media goes with that kind of um, information as soon as they know that spiders could eat the weight of all the human population, right? They immediately say spiders could eat every human on earth <laughs> if they wanted to, right? And so this is where arachnologists need to like, wait a minute, like, hold on. But they eat a lot of food, like hundreds of insects, thousands of insects a year per spider. And so removing that one spider, it's like, do you want a spider on your porch or do you want a hundred mosquitoes on your porch? And it is like, I think most often people raise their hand, I'll take the one spider, right? And so they, they do a, a really good job. They are important to us in a variety of reasons um, because of the impact that they have on things that we would consider more harmful to us than spiders. I have a side question. <laughs> Is there any... Okay. Let's say I want more spiders at my house. Can I scoop up some here at the office and then transplant them up the road at my house. If I do that, are they just discombobulated? Does that affect them at all? For many of the species, it probably wouldn't matter. Um, for the species that probably burrow um, or are trying, or like they have a normal burrow system set up or they have a place, a retreat that they're going back to, that might that might disrupt their 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 normal livelihood for a while. They probably could find or make another burrow um, just fine eventually. But for for some of the species that are are living kind of in the leaf litter, in the grass, in the undergrowth, um, without having a permanent retreat, um, I think they probably would just get get by just fine. Okay. Um, so, thank you. I'm picturing you in like witchy attire on an episode of Hoarders and they're like removing bucketfuls of spiders from your house because you have built this insane spider army. And they all have names. Yes, obviously. Like Sparkle Muffin. <laughs> I'm never going to forget this. Okay, so I learned a very, very cool term recently and it was all centered around the fact that you, Dustin, were coming to town and that was spider sniffing. Can you tell us a little bit about spider sniffing and what it is and how our listeners can participate? So I'll be honest, when I saw the outline for uh, this podcast and I saw spider sniffing, I was like, what in the heck is spider sniffing? <laughs> what? I thought this what? was something you like coined. No, no, I, I never. Is this a Lindsayism? I, I, no. But, so I, I mean, I, I did as every, as every good scientist would do. I Googled it. And I was like, what is spider sniffing? Because I better be prepared when they ask me the spider sniffing question. Because I immediately thought of like, who holds a spider up to their nose and be like, I, what are you, why would you do that? And so, and then in my, in my quick Google search, I was like, oh, it's, I call it eye shining. Oh, okay. So we did talk about that. So, so 
I I call it eye shining, but a lot of other people call it spider sniffing. And I just have never run across another human that has called it spider sniffing before. And I actually like Blame you, calling it spider sniffing. So I might actually use spider sniffing tonight for the first time when we do this night, the night walk. Okay. Just to give y'all an aside, not an aside, but I did not coin the term. I heard it from somebody else at the Great Plains Nature Center who I'm sure they heard it from somebody else. It's out there. It is it's not it's not just a thing in this room. Right. It is it is a real thing. I had just never heard of it before. So what we do is we take advantage of an adaptation that wolf spiders have to live at night. Um, they have a mirror at the back of their eyes called a tapetum, and that enables them to capture more light um, and when less light is available at night, um, any photon of light that their eye can capture is something that might help them. And so any photon that might move through their eye and not get captured by a photoreceptor hits that mirror and it sends it back out and it gives the photoreceptor a second chance to detect it. So it it increases the brightness in every situation. We take advantage of that with a flashlight. And so what we do is we take a flashlight and I shine it on the ground and it hits that mirror, and then it comes right back at you, and all of a sudden it lights up the ground like a, I, I, I say it's like a little emerald or a little gem on the ground. And you can see spiders that are no bigger than the a sand grain from 20 feet away. You can't see the spider when you're a foot away from it, but yet you can see it 50 feet away, 20 feet away with your flashlight. Ah, I love it so much. And this is not something that you listeners haven't already experienced either with your cat or your dog, a deer, a cow. Like you've seen that eye shine in bigger animals. It's the same thing with spiders. I love that. I love, and I mean this in all sincerity, it's going to sound sarcastic, but I love that if I'm ever feeling sad or alone, I can go out in my yard and, and do some spider sniffing and know that I am surrounded by these cool amazing fascinating creatures with all these insane adaptions and just feel a little bit about a yeah. little bit better about my place on this you are literally planet. surrounded there are way more spiders in your lawn than you realize and hopefully after listening to this podcast you feel much more at ease about that than you did coming into it i'm gonna guess a lot of people aren't gonna walk in their yards um, barefoot <laughs> after this podcast <laughs> Oh, man. So I have to ask, um, do you have a favorite spider or any sort of um, favorite spider behavior that you've observed and want to talk about? Asking me what my favorite spider is is like asking me who my favorite kid is. Oh. Like, I, I can't. Is I it can't like a taboo one. thing? And like, you shouldn't have a favorite, but no, you I do? just like, they're all, <laughs> they're all great. Um, I, I've studied wolf spiders the most. Um, I think the jumping spiders are adorable. Um, ogre face spiders are wicked cool um and so it's like how do i pick one out of all of those um i know the most about wolf spiders and so my i probably would say they're some of my favorite just because i know a lot of what's going on what particular behaviors or characteristics about wolf spiders drew you to them um when we talked about that multimodal communication um their their ability to produce a a visual display. They have ornamentation on their legs. Sometimes it's pigment. Sometimes it's a brush that's like this really big hairy brush on the leg. 
Um, they're creating vibration. They're they're communicating chemically, um, multimodal signaling, and the the complexities of their of their signaling system being so far beyond what I can perceive. Um, it it's fantastic. So that's that's why I did it. I just love it so much. Lindsay's overwhelmed. I am. I really am. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I am a fan of spiders. Um, in fact, my wedding—they picked up on that. My my wedding bands are two spider webs that surround my my wedding ring. I haven't even shown you these yet, but post a picture. Wow. Yeah, we can share a picture of it. I'm okay. obsessed with it. Tell them the story about how you almost forgot to bring it, and then you were like, "Oh my gosh, I have to wear it." What? Oh, today. Yeah. <laughs> I I left work early, and I went home and took a quick shower. Um, and I was in my car backing out of my driveway and I was like, oh man, I don't have my spiderweb wedding rings on. I have to go back and get them to show Dustin my spiderweb ring. So I put the car in park almost like halfway out into the street, ran back inside, got the rings and then jumped in the car and came back. So that is one of the most (laughs) fantastic rings I've ever seen. Um, I, you know, I would love to say that I would get one for my my wife, but I know she would not wear it. <laughs> she does not share the same fascination. I'm just glad she puts up with my fascination. So I have to ask: Do you have any spiders in the home? Pet spiders? Mm, no, like in cages. <laughs> funny story. Um, I used to, um, and I took advantage of my son, um, who at the time was three years old, and. Um, my wife listens um, to my son way more than she listens to my requests. And so I went through him. You didn't. Oh, I did. <laughs> I, I said, how about, Noah, let's go to, there was there was a reptile show, which always has tarantulas there as well. And I'm like, how about we go to a reptile show here in town? And we're looking around like, you need to ask your mom if you can have a tarantula. Because she will have a hard time saying no to you she would be like, heck no, to me, she bent, and she let him get one. We had it upstairs. Within probably six months of us having it upstairs, we went on a trip to Thanksgiving, and we came back, and I went upstairs to check on the spider, and I looked, and I looked, and the spider was gone. And I was very quiet because one of the the rules about having the spider in the house was if we lose that spider, I am not sleeping in the house until we find said spider. And so I was very quiet. And I think for an hour, I sat digging through that aquarium, looking through all of the dirt, trying to find the spider. And she finally caught me. And she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, nothing. (laughs) And she's like, you can't find the spider, can you? And I'm like, no, I can't. And Gosh. we never found it. <gasps> oh. We, she, and she did sleep in the house that night. So Okay, I was like, was has like she come she, back? No, it, like <laughs> she, she broke her first rule um, and she actually did sleep. We, we took all of the sheets from all the beds and like tucked them underneath the mattress. So there was no, like, we think that our, our cat very likely was standing on the um, on the aquarium, on the lid, and it tipped the lid in, which is when the spider got out, and we actually think that the cat probably ate it. Oh, 
because we we moved we moved out of the house like a year later. Um, I got done with my my graduate program, and we moved back to Kansas. We cleaned that house spick and span, nothing. And so the only place that spider could have been was in like the ductwork. Um, we never found it, and so I'm guessing our cat took care of it. Um, but that's why we don't have spiders in the house. That's why I have four tarantulas in my office. Um, oh, oh my gosh, what a journey that was! <laughs> fully invested. Like you took advantage of your son like that. <laughs> oh man, well. That was a trip, and I do not think um, I will be inviting any pet spiders into my house, perhaps for that reason, but all of the fuzzy little jumping spiders are welcome. Thank you for your service, jumping spiders. You are adorable. I want to give you all a hug. I will be getting a pet spider. Yeah. Well, you also said you were going to have a drawer full of crickets after our entomophagy episode, so I don't know if those two are going to... Keegan gave me a hard no on that one. Keegan's my husband. <laughs> hard no on the crickets. He doesn't. He does not like crickets and grasshoppers because they're scratchy legs. But um, if I have a spider, like a little jumping spider in an enclosure, I think I think I can sell him on that. Soft fuzzy legs. Exactly. They're, they're quiet. Very cute. Crickets, noisy. Right. Just food for spiders. Exactly. Problem solved. <laughs> Okay, Dustin, we always ask our guests um, a couple of wrap-up questions. They're always the same questions. And our first one is, when it comes to spiders, what keeps you up at night other than capturing them? Like, what what worries you about spiders? I was actually taking it a completely different direction. I was like, I'm not worried about spiders. They're like nothing that I stay up at night, like, thinking about spiders that, like I'm afraid of them. I'd like I completely broken that fear. Um, what keeps me up actually is like the next question to do in science. It's like I just did this experiment. Like, what's the next step to really kind of truly open the door um, to the understanding this communication system, this behavioral system, and so like the fascination, the curiosity part is what keeps me up. Not not the fear at all. I love that. And you mentioned earlier in the podcast that it's estimated that only 20% of the overall spider populations or species have been discovered and described. Is mm-hmm. that um, that unknowing and those unanswered questions, is that what makes you the most excited when you think about spiders? Um, for the field of arachnology, yes. Um, just because there's so much we don't know. Um, and so, like, am I likely... To, to to find any of these species no because the majority of the ones we don't know about are in the tropics and like I probably am not going to be the one to travel and find them um, but for the field yes there's just so much that we don't know um, five years ago um, I got a grant from Kansas Department of Wildlife Parks and Tourism the Chickadee Checkoff Fund um, and I got a grant to do a survey of Sandhill State Park, which is an understudied um, ecosystem in Kansas. And I surveyed that region for um, spider species. And um, I'm collaborating with the the guy that uh, wrote the Kansas spider checklist, um, Hank Garisco. Um, he's identifying a lot of those for me. And there is a good chance that he thinks we might have found a brand new species from there. Um, so... It's, I, I have to find, right now we only have one um, 
male specimen and we would need to find the female um, to go along with it. Um, but there's a chance that, that this could be a brand new species to science and who knows what I'll name it. If you need extra eyeballs to help you find these spiders, right. call me up. Please, I want to go. <laughs> they're really, really small. I think they're. I think it was a linophead. Um, it's they're like tiny, tiny. Um, they live in the leaf litter. Um, so we'd need a whole bunch of eyes digging through leaf litter to see if we could find this spider. Well, Dustin, I'm really glad that you brought up the Chickadee Checkoff program, and I'm glad that the important research you're doing is benefiting from those funds. Um, The Chickadee Checkoff program, if you're interested in learning more about that, you can go to our website at ksoutdoors.com, or you can visit chickadeecheckoff.com. That's a whole website dedicated to this funding source, um, so you can support the Chickadee Checkoff program. Now, it's important to note, obviously, spiders are not chickadees. Chickadee Checkoff supports all Kansas non-game species, so your donation means help for a diverse range of species, from birds in your backyard to mammals, amphibians, insects, and even reptiles. So keep that in mind. And there are multiple different ways you can donate. So one way is to, um, on your tax return, to check the box and say, I want to donate to the Chickadee Checkoff program. Or you can go directly to that website at chickadeecheckoff.com and you can donate online today, right now, clickety-clack, hope you're on your keyboards, getting that page pulled up. Um, Chickadee Checkoff is also important because uh, some of that funding goes toward education as well. So it is education, it's conservation, it's everything you need all wrapped up in one. Yeah, speaking of education, um, the Chickadee Checkoff Fund funded um, the printing of my books, right, which is focused on education of non-game wildlife like spiders. So with every book sold, about 20% of every book sale goes back to the Chickadee Checkoff. So my goal is to not only replace the funds that they've invested in my books, but to exceed that, right? So if I could not only um, spread the message on non-game wildlife, but also increase the funding to support research and education around non-game wildlife, then it's a, it's a win-win situation. So I've, I've replaced so far in the first two books that I've printed, I've replaced like 60% of the money. Um, and, um, and with the third book coming, I'll have a little bit more to catch up, but I have a lot of sales to do, um, and a lot of excitement. So I'm, I'm super happy and, um, super, um, blessed to have, be able to have that opportunity to work with Chickadee Checkoff. They've been a wonderful partner, um, to, to work with. And I, I'm, I'm lucky to be able to have that kind of support. Awesome. That's a fantastic program. So please do go check it out. And Dustin, if folks want to support you and help you reach that goal, where can they go to find and purchase your spider series? Um, so the easiest place, the most direct place to, to go, this is, um, if you order from this site, I sign every single book that I seen uh, that I send out. Um, it's Dustin, dash wilgers dot square dot site and that'll take you to my personal author webpage. you can buy book one you can buy book two um you can buy the bundle together um and usually i'm pretty quick to sign and get them out the door because i can't wait to have them in kids hands and so um look for book three probably in a couple months and you could buy all three of them together um or if you want to get your kids reading the story like now so that they're ready for book three to come out and they're ready to go buy book one and two now, get them reading them. And then you can um, buy book three when it comes out. 
That's so exciting. And we'll be sure to link that website in our show notes so people can access it pretty easily. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, And lastly, uh, we always like to leave our listeners with some kind of an action. Do you have a goal or a challenge you'd like to pose for them? Yes. So one of the things that that kind of spurred me on to, to this phase of my career, which is more focused on outreach and education than, than research. I still love research. I, I, I do some of it with my students when I can, but um, I really am focused on breaking the cycle of arachnophobia. Um, and so if you have changed a little bit of your perception or um, your reality about spiders um, by listening to this podcast, um, share it, right? Because um, what's going to happen is arachnophobia is not one of those things that's kind of innate. It's learned and it's passed on socially. It's passed on from parent to child. It's passed on from friend to friend. And so if you are comfortable around spiders and you understand their importance and you're intrigued, you're fascinated, then then share that with your friends, share that with your children. Um, and all of a sudden it's very quick to break the cycle of arachnophobia. Um, and then all of those con- that conservation problem that we're talking about the population problems, the declines, all of a sudden, now they're not much of an issue. It's fantastic. Well, Dustin, you have fascinated us. You've dazzled us. You've made us laugh. You've made us cry. It's been a really wonderful conversation. I love that we went from identification to education about the population level. And then, of course, like you said, that message of giving that back and sharing your knowledge and passion and just bettered understanding with others. So thank you so much for taking us there, and thank you for joining us today. This was a blast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's been a fantastic conversation. Real quick before we go, um, are there any like social media outlets or anything that you would recommend our, follow- or our listeners follow if they want to kind of stay up to date on any of the outreach and education that you are doing? Um, I have a Facebook page called Eight Leg Education um, that I oftentimes post where I'm going to be at and what I'm doing. Um, and then my personal Facebook page, um, I also keep people updated on, on where, what's happening with my books, um, and, and when and where to find them. So eight leg, eight leg education is probably the first place I would go. Um, but you're always welcome to, to friend or follow me. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you again so much for joining us and we'll be sure to link the social media pages also in our show notes um, and any other resources that we mentioned throughout this episode. And um, we hope you get out there and enjoy some new eight-legged friends in your backyard. Do some spider sniffing. Yes. Sniff them out. And remember, listeners, that flat is is a state state of mind. mind. Flatlander Podcast is made possible through a partnership between the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. Sound and production by Megan Mayhew. Music by Kansas locals, The Box Turtles. Become a member of KWF for free by visiting kansaswildlifefederation.org. And be sure to follow KWF on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife Federation and on Instagram at KS Wildlife Fed. Stay up to date on all things KDWP by following the department on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife and Parks and on Instagram at the KDWP. Remember, the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks is supported by flatlanders like you through the sale of licenses and permits. 
Consider buying a hunting or fishing license today to conserve and protect the wild spaces and faces that make Kansas more than flyover country.